Morning, everybody. Morning. Uh, that was a hearty good morning. <laughs> hey, if you're here last week, we began a new sermon series on Psalm chapter one, which I've titled The Blessed or Blessed Life. The Blessed Life. And if you were here last week, then you began with us when we looked at the way of blessedness, verses one and two, which introduced us to the blessed man who's described as one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And why? Why doesn't he do any of those things? Because his delight is in the law of the Lord, the word of God. In other words, the blessed man doesn't want to do those things. He doesn't delight in wicked things. He delights in sweeter and more precious and more beautiful things. And why, why does he? Because he's been radically changed by God. God has plucked him off the wicked path and has set him on the blessed path and God has supernaturally altered his spiritual taste buds, making his word so sweet to him. And so if you remember, we talked about how this psalm isn't telling us how to be blessed. It's not saying, do this and this and that and this and then God will bless you. Rather, the psalmist is showing us what happens to a person when God blesses them. He's showing us the result of divine blessedness. And now this morning, we're gonna be going a little bit deeper into the psalm and looking at how the psalmist describes the essence of blessedness, what it is exactly. You might say the isness of blessedness, the essence of blessedness. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Psalm chapter one. Psalm chapter one. And let me start by just reading the psalm in its entirety and then I'll pray for us and then we'll start digging into the second stanza a little deeper, okay? Psalm chapter one. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy, inspired, inerrant word this morning. Lord, make your word come alive and grab a hold of us this morning that we might sink deeply into it and drink sweetly from it, Lord. Holy Spirit, come and help us now, we pray. Amen. 
Amen. So as just a reminder, here's the outline for the sermon series. Stands number one, which we looked at last week, the way of blessedness, verses one and two. Stands in number two, the essence of blessedness, verses three and four. And then stands in number three, which we'll look at next week, is the hope of blessedness, verses five and six. So again, that's the way of blessedness, where it goes, the essence of blessedness, what it is exactly, and the hope of blessedness, what it destines us for, okay? So this morning we'll be looking at the second stanza, the essence of blessedness, verses three and four. Let me read it just one more time. He, the blessed man, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So, here, the psalmist is employing a device called parallelism. Parallelism, which is where you hold up two things and compare them side by side. And in this case, the things being compared are blessedness and wickedness, or the blessed man and the wicked man. So kind of like how we see Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly in the book of Proverbs, here we see one man we should hope to identify with, the blessed man, and another we should want nothing to do with, the wicked man, right? And actually, it's kind of interesting that there's, there's this two men motif, one wicked, one blessed, that, that recurs over and over in the Bible. We see Adam and the second Adam, Jesus Christ. We see Cain and Abel, Ishmael and Isaac, Esau and Jacob, Saul and David, and so on and so forth. So the psalmist is picking up on that motif and is employing parallelism to compare them. And the first thing the psalmist does is he uses agricultural images to describe what the blessed man and the wicked man are like. And he says that the blessed man is like a tree, but the wicked man is like chaff. And chaff, if you didn't know, is the uh, shell or husk of a piece of grain. It's the shell of a piece of grain. And so in biblical times, when, when the grain was harvested, it was beaten and crushed and then tossed into the air, which would then cause the inedible part, the chaff, which was very light to be blown away, but the edible part, the actual grain itself, which was heavier, to fall straight back down to the ground. So at the end of this process, which was called winnowing, you would have a pile of useless chaff that has just been blown away, leaving behind a pile of useful grain. And actually, you can watch YouTube videos of people doing this, and it's kind of interesting how it works. So the blessed man is being compared to a tree, and the wicked man being compared to chaff. And biblically, biblically to be compared to a tree is a very encouraging thing, because God calls himself a tree who bears fruit for his people, Hosea 14, eight. And Jesus calls himself the true vine, John 15, one. And wisdom is called a tree of life, Proverbs 3.18. And of course, a tree of life appears at the very beginning of the Bible in the Garden of Eden, and then reappears at the very end of the Bible in the new creation. And so in a way, the Bible and all of redemptive history is bookended by trees. And there are literally hundreds of references to trees 
in the Bible, many of which are used poetically to talk about positive and godly and blessed things. But to be compared to chaff isn't so encouraging. In fact, it's a very scary thing because Matthew chapter three, verse 12 says that Jesus bears a winnowing fork with which he will separate the godly from the wicked and he will, quote, gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And Jeremiah 23, 28 says that false prophecy is like chaff. And along with our passage here in Psalm 1, Isaiah chapter 13, verse 17, and Hosea chapter 13, verse 3, all say that the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. So chaff in the Bible is often associated with negative and ungodly and wicked things. And this, this concept of being driven away, as chaff is said to be driven away by the wind, this is another recurring biblical motif that usually goes by a different name, which is a word that starts with the letter E. Exile. Exile. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they, like chaff, were driven away. They were exiled from his holy presence in the Garden of Eden. And when the northern kingdom of Israel, 722, when they rebelled against God, they, like chaff, were driven away. They were exiled by God into Assyria. And when the southern kingdom of Judah rebelled against God, 586 BC, they, like chaff, were driven away, exiled from the presence of God into Babylon. And over and over again in scripture, we see that sin and rebellion leads to exile. Banishment, being driven away from the presence of the holy God. And then the second thing the psalmist does is he continues with the metaphor and he says that the tree and chaff are located in two different places. Where's the tree? He's planted by streams of water. And the chaff is, well, who knows where? Just blown away by the wind. Now, if we use some passages from the New Testament to help us interpret these metaphors, like John chapter 15, where Jesus is called the true vine, and God the Father is called the vine dresser, or some translations say the gardener, then it seems reasonable to assume that this tree didn't plant himself. This tree didn't plant himself, but that God, the divine gardener, planted him by streams of water. And this is consistent with what we talked about last week, was that, which was that by nature, we're all born in the seat of scoffers, 10,000 miles down the road of wickedness, away from God. And by nature, we don't ever want to dethrone ourselves from that sinful seat. And so it takes a supernatural work of God to take us, to graciously take us, and then uproot us, and then plant us somewhere else. This is the exact opposite of exile. This is exodus. This is redemption. So here's what I see in this passage. I see God's sovereign hand all over the blessed man. 
I see God having plucked him off the wicked path and planted him on the blessed path by streams of life-giving water so that he will be nourished and will grow and will be fruitful, which will bring glory to the gardener who put him there. But notice that with the wicked man, there's an absence of agency here on God's part, right? God seems to be kind of hands off with him and just allows him to be carried away by the wind, just allows him to carry on down the path of wickedness in the course of this world unto his own destruction. And this is the last we see of the wicked man in this passage. The last thing we see is him just floating away further and further and further until he completely disappears from our sight and is spoken of no more. But then the psalmist tells us three more things about the blessed man. Number one, he bears fruit in its season. And number two, his leaf does not wither. And number three, in all that he does, he prospers. In other words, because of where this tree is planted and because of the stream of water he is drawing his life from, which in the context seems to be referring to God's word, verse two, but which would certainly include things like God's presence and God's spirit as well. Because of this, he bears spiritual fruit, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and this life, this life that he's drawing up from his roots, up his trunk and out to his branches, this life is sustaining him and is keeping him green and healthy such that you would not find a single withering or shriveling leaf on him. In fact, you'd find just the opposite. You'd find him continually growing and continually producing and continually prospering in everything. That, the psalmist says, is the essence of blessedness. Isn't that amazing? And so the psalmist uses parallelism to show us what blessedness is and what blessedness is not. And if I could summarize each in a single sentence, I'd say, first, the essence of wickedness, what blessedness is not, the essence of wickedness is just drifting throughout life, spiritually fruitless, useless, and lifeless, because we are not rooted in God's word. Just drifting, just floating, just being carried away by the wind throughout this life, spiritually fruitless, useless, and lifeless because we are not rooted in God's word. We are rooted in no sure foundation. But the essence of blessedness is being spiritually fruitful, useful, and full of life because we are deeply rooted in God's word. 
being spiritually fruitful, useful, and full of life because we are deeply rooted in God's word. Now, I'll save my comments for the wicked man for next week, um, but I just wanna give two applications this morning for the blessed man. So, if it is your hope this morning to identify with the blessed man, then these applications are for you, okay? Here's the first one. Sink your roots deep into the life source. Sink your roots deep into the life source, God's word. If you are indeed a blessed man who's been blessed by God to have been plucked from the wicked path and planted on the blessed path by streams of life-giving water, then sink your roots deep into the life source. Draw up all the life and sweetness and blessing that is there for you to have and be filled with and be satisfied by. Open the word daily and hear from God. Draw near to God and let him speak to you through his word and listen to him and he will change you. He will grow you. He will comfort you. He will encourage you. His word will be like rain that falls from heaven to refresh you. His word will be like a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path to guide you. His word will be like a sword of the spirit to defend you. His word will become more precious to you than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb if you sink your roots deep into the life source. This is so cool. When Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, how did he fight off his attacks? Do you remember? He quoted scripture. He quoted scripture. He let the scripture wage war against Satan. And one of those scriptures he quoted comes from Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse three, which says, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Some of you may be sitting here this morning just feeling miserable. And you don't know why. You can't put your finger on what it is. The truth is that there could be hundreds of things going on contributing to making you feel miserable, especially right now. But it's also true that some of your misery may be stemming from being spiritually starved because you do not feast. You don't, do not routinely feast on God's word. Look, there's a reason God uses the metaphor of daily bread to describe his word. It's not just because God thought it would be fun or cute to do so. It's because we are both physical and spiritual beings. And going a day without God's word to nourish our spirits is like going a day without food to nourish our bodies. I don't know how many of you guys are weightlifters, but I love to lift weights. And over the last decade as I've been lifting weights, 
I've become so attuned to my own body that when I'm at the bottom of a heavy squat or when I'm about to pull a bunch of weight off the ground in a deadlift, I know immediately, immediately, if I've had enough food to eat that, to eat that day or not. I know it immediately because if I've had enough food, you know, all the fats and carbs and protein that I need, if I've had enough food, I generally feel pretty strong and stable. But if I haven't had enough food, or worse, if I've gone into the workout in a fasted state, 10 out of 10 would not recommend, at least if you're lifting heavy weights, if I hadn't had enough food to eat, I generally feel pretty weak and wobbly. And so I've learned to take my diet just as seriously as my strength training because my diet directly affects, affects the quality of my workout. And in the same way, our spiritual diets, or lack thereof, will directly affect our spiritual health and our walk with the Lord. And if we are not attuned to our spirit, that spiritual aspect of our being, if we are not attuned to our spirit, we could be walking around like spiritual zombies and not even know that it's because we're spiritually famished. Some of you may have walked into church today just spiritually starved and dehydrated because your roots have only been sipping up little droplets of water from the river of life when you could be swimming in it. You've only been nibbling at God's word when you could be feasting on it. So this morning is an invitation to sink your roots deeper and deeper into the life source. Sink your roots deep into the life source. To quote Isaiah, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Hear that? Come, come, and delight yourselves in the rich food of God's word. And know that there you will find Jesus, the bread of life, the true manna sent from heaven, the one whose body was broken for us, and who endlessly gives of himself and feeds multitudes and who alone can and will satisfy the deepest spiritual hunger pangs of your soul. Sink your roots deep into the life source. Second application. Give glory to the gardener who's planted you there at the life source. Give glory to the gardener who's planted you there. I wanna show you guys something really cool, but it, it might be a little difficult to grasp, so you're gonna have to pay careful attention, okay? Okay? Let me start with an analogy. Have you ever seen one of those mosaic images 
mosaic where literally hundreds of different pictures are, uh, pictures are all squeezed together and such that when you stand back from that picture, you see another image emerge, a big image that all of those little images are creating. You know what I'm talking about? Basically, when you're up close, all you can see is hundreds of little images, but when you back up, you see the bigger picture. Well, in the same way, there's a little picture and a big picture view of this psalm. Here's how the little picture view goes. Look at how God graciously pursues rebel sinners like you and me, who by nature are just being blown away by the wind down the path of wickedness unto our own destruction. Look at how God graciously pursues them and then takes them and then uproots them and then plants them by streams of life-giving water so that they will be nourished and will grow and will be fruitful. Look at how God's blessing can change a wicked man into a blessed man. Chaff to a tree. That's the little picture view of this song. And it's certainly something that ought to move us to praise and give glory to God for. Amen? Now, if we step back a bit, here's the big picture view. And it will take a second for this image to come into focus, so just be patient. Here's the big picture view. Look at how all humanity, all humanity in Adam was exiled, driven away from God's holy presence in the luxuriant and life-filled paradise that was the Garden of Eden. And look at how being separated from this life in the presence of God and being separated from the tree of life, look at how it leads to death. But then look at how God takes the initiative to bring members of this estranged and exiled humanity back to himself, back into his presence, starting in a big way with the call and really the exodus of one man from Babylon named Abram, who's later renamed Abraham. And then look at how right after the big historical exodus from Egypt, which the book Exodus is titled after, look at how right after that exodus, God instructs his people, the descendants of Abraham, to build a tabernacle, a big portable tent where God's presence would dwell in a special way among them. And look at how certain features in the tabernacle harken back to the Garden of Eden, like the giant curtain separating the most holy place from the rest of the tabernacle, which was embroidered with cherubim just like how God stationed cherubim outside the Garden of Eden after the fall to guard that sacred space from the intrusion of sinful man. And then look at that fertile land flowing with milk and honey that God led his people to out of the wilderness, the promised land, the land God promised to the descendants of Abraham. And then look at the incredible structure that replaced the tabernacle in the promised land, Solomon's temple. And look at how all its architectural features harken back to the Garden of Eden. Like in the 
innumerable carvings of palm trees and pomegranates and blossoming flowers all over the temple showing us the inextricable connection between God's presence and abundant life. And then look at Jesus, the Son of God, who took on human flesh and came into our world and skenao, tabernacled among us, John 1.14. Jesus, the living, breathing temple presence of God in human form, who was so full of life that even death couldn't hold him down. Jesus, the true vine into whom we, like branches, can be grafted, set into such that we will fuse together and and have that life, receive that life. Another agricultural image, grafting, Romans 11, 17. And then, look at Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church, such that every believer Every believer became indwelled by the very temple presence of God, which makes God's people like fruitful trees, full of life, bearing the Spirit's fruit. And then look at how the church was commissioned to go out into all the world to spread the seeds of this life-giving gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then... Look at how the Bible ends. In a new creation, a new heavens, a new earth, a new garden, a new promised land, a complete paradise, restoration where the tree of life is present once again and God's glory covers all the earth. Here's what I'm getting at with all this. Look at how our creator the divine gardener in whose presence is abundant life. Look at how he has been engaged in restoring this broken and fallen world, in reversing the effects of the curse of sin, in returning ruined sinners back to himself, and gradually returning all the earth, all his creation to Eden, back into that state of paradise that he created it to be. Here's what I'm saying. As God has, in the little picture, pursued you and me, and has taken us, and has uprooted us, and then has planted us by streams of life-giving water, as he's been doing that, he's been engaged in this glorious, big picture process of bringing newness and restoration to all his creation, just as he promised when he said, Behold, I am making all things new. Revelation 21.5. And seeing this wonderful big picture gives us many more reasons to give glory to the divine gardener. Amen? Give glory to the gardener who planted you there at the life source. Now, in closing, I just want to—I want to give an encouragement to anyone who, who has been deeply rooted in God's Word and has been grafted into Christ and has been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 
but isn't yet seeing the kind of fruitfulness and usefulness and life that you expected to see at this point in your life. And I want to encourage you by reading something that Jesus said about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew chapter 13, and then something that Isaiah said about Jesus in, uh, in Isaiah chapter 42. So first, Jesus, Matthew 13, verses 31 through 32. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. In other words, the kingdom of heaven itself has a growth process. The kingdom of heaven itself has a growth process. And we can look outside our front doors and see that this is the case, that the kingdom of God on earth hasn't yet fully matured because not all of the earth yet is under the complete and total rule and lordship and dominion of Christ. And if even the kingdom of heaven has a growth process, we should be comfortable recognizing that we too, as citizens of that kingdom, we too have a growth process and are not yet the kinds of men and women that one day we shall be. And here's a comfort in that, Isaiah 42, verse three. A bruised reed, he, the Messiah, will not break. A bruised reed, he will not break. Listen, our merciful and gentle and tender Lord Jesus, who will not break us, he knows our frame. He knows how bruised and weathered we are. And that's why he's entrusted our growth process not to ourselves, but to the divine gardener who possesses more life in his fingertip than 10,000 Edens and who is tending to us day and night and is cultivating us and is growing us into mighty trees with deep roots and who is pleased and delighted in the little bits of fruit that we are bearing right now. He truly is. And so, let's trust in the divine gardener and let's look to the true vine into whom we, like branches, have been grafted and let's sink our roots deep into the life source as we await that awesome springtime harvest and paradise restoration that is coming and is dawning even now. Amen. Let me pray once more for us. Lord, we thank you. We thank you so much for taking wicked men and making them blessed men. We thank you for turning chaff to trees. Lord, we thank you for pursuing us down the path of wickedness and plucking us from that path and then planting us on the blessed path by streams of life-giving water so that we will be nourished and will grow and will be fruitful. 
Oh Lord, it's all of grace. And it's all of love. Lord, you are a good gardener. You are a good gardener, Lord. Lord, we want to be fruitful trees. Lord, we want to bear much fruit. And so we ask that you would prune us and protect us and help us to desire to sink our roots deeper and deeper into the life source, your word, that we might draw up much life and sweetness and blessing from it, Lord. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you and on the new creation that is coming and is dawning even now as all who are in Christ now are called a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 and as the heavens are declaring your glory right now. Psalm 19.1 Lord, we pray, have your way in this world and have your way in our hearts. Lord, we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Amen. Go in the grace of God.